Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD Plus. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that there are two alkaloids in coffee beans. One of them is caffeine, the one we've all heard of. The other one is called trigonaline, and there's twice as much trigonaline as there is caffeine in coffee. And when you roast the beans, this other alkaloid turns into nicotinic acid, also known as niacin. And it turns out when you burn nicotine, you get nicotinic acid, also known as niacin. And that's probably why the tradition of coffee and cigarettes going well together got established because they both create the same substance that helps your brain feel better. Niacin's a B vitamin. I'm not saying smoking is good for you. I've never smoked, but I am saying that niacin's good for you. And it's interesting that coffee and cigarettes both have a niacin component in them. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today, we're going to be hearing from a journalist named Adam Kosloff about low-carb diets. Adam runs a website called WhyLowCarbDietsWork.com. He's going to be discussing how his thoughts about diet and nutrition have evolved over the years and some tips to make low-carb diets more effective if that's the path you choose. We also discuss exercise recommendations, how to stop carb cravings, 
and a lot more. It's important to think about this not as you know how to lose weight, but actually how to be higher performance uh, as an entrepreneur, uh, just as a human being. So by shifting your carbon intake lower and doing it in an intelligent way, you become a higher performing human, not just a weightlifter or a, a weight loss kind of person. So now we're going to move on to our exclusive interview about low-carb diets with Adam Kosloff. Today we've got a guy named Adam Kosloff from the website whylowcarbdietswork.com. He's a journalist. He went to Yale. He worked as a screenwriter for a while, and now he writes about nutrition and, as his website says, why low-carb diets work. He's written over 30,000 articles for the web, and now he's going to talk to us about those same topics. So I, we talked a little bit about before the show about how you got into this, but for the people who obviously weren't listening in on our conversation, could you just recap a little bit about how you got interested in nutrition and health? Yeah, sure. It's a twisted journey. I, uh, like, you know, I went to Yale. I studied geophysics. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to abandon all of this. I'm going to go to Los Angeles and be a screenwriter because I thought that was that would be fun. And uh, it was it was kind of fun, but also like hellaciously harder than I expected. I did get to write for some TV shows, but meanwhile, I had to like you know work a day job for a lot of that, and that was doing this web writing for hire. And uh, I ended up writing like you know all these articles. And then along along came like uh, in 2008, I read Gary Taubes' Good Calories, Bad Calories, and I was like. It totally threw me for a loop and it like made me want to like just get into this and use my web writing powers to spread the word because, you know, it's one thing to like write a episode of Woody Woodpecker and like, but really that's ultimately just selling corn syrup to kids. And uh, I figured there's like a higher calling here. And so I'm trying to do my part, my small part to break the grip of the USDA food pyramid. Great. Yeah. That so makes sense. Let's dive right into it. If somebody was eating like, a 2,000 calorie diet, and one group was eating like 70% of their diets from carbs and whole grains and all those heart healthy things that the government recommends, and the other group was eating lots of artery clogging, saturated fat, and bacon. Why would the bacon group? Well, obviously they're going to be happier because bacon tastes amazing. <laughs> why would not if you eat 70% of your calories from it though? Then then, yeah. then you're going to be sick of it. Yeah. So why would the uh, bacon group be healthier? Why would restricting carbs be a healthy thing to do well you know it's interesting it, it kind of depends it, it might it might or might not if your metabolism has not been destroyed by sugar uh, possibly you could be just as fine on the, on the whole wheat diet as you would on the low carb diet but for people who are metabolically sensitive you know the, this is the the stupid oversimplified answer but when you eat too many too many carbs uh, um, too much sugar it's going to mess with your insulin levels and uh, cause you to store stuff as calories as fat instead of to burn them off. So the idea is when you when you eat lower carb lower low, lower carbohydrate diet, you're eating a lower insulin diet, which means that you're not getting the calories stuffed into your fat tissue, but you're actually able to burn them off. And then the other part of this goes along with people who are like, well fine, that sounds technical, but the reality is that bacon's gonna give me a heart attack. And then that is also false. Basically Bacon is saturated fat. We all believe saturated fat is going to give you heart attacks and kill you. And actually, this, the research doesn't support that. So that's the long-winded answer to that question. Right. Basically, since people have placed an overemphasis on calories for a while, it sounds like, and how they've yeah. acted like calories are all the same, then there's the kind of reciprocal to that where people are saying that calories don't count at all. So is it possible to overeat on a very, very low carbohydrate diet? Like let's say something like a ketogenic diet? Absolutely. And this is, 
here's the thing. This is, I, I, you know, I talk about this in my, in my new report, Calorie Gate, in the book I'm writing called Beyond Calorie Gate, which is like, you could, sure, you could eat just like pure lard, right? Lard is, we can all, the people in the low-carb community agrees, it's like a low, very low insulinogenic food. It's not going to spike your insulin levels. But if you're just pouring lard down your throat, you know, you're going to, I don't know, I mean, I don't know the, the, the biophysics or biochemistry, but yeah, you'll, you know, you're not going to lose weight. You might gain weight. And so, you know, when that happens, especially when people, you know, you go on a, a low carb diet and you're gaining weight, like people, or you're not losing weight, people are like, well, it's all about calories. They all, everyone, when things go wrong, when things get too complicated with nutrition, people just default to the kind of thing, well, just don't eat too much, eat in moderation, because it's the thing we all know. And it's simple. You know, unfortunately, reality is complex and, and so there's this disconnect there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That sounds great. Well, one of the problems people thought, talk about with a high-carbohydrate diet is the fact that it does make people eat more and it stimulates appetite. Now, how yeah. do carbohydrates stimulate appetite and cause people to eat enough to gain weight? The mechanics of the regulation of appetite are sort of beyond me. I mean, I don't – I could start to, like, make stuff up or give you the, the junior high school answer here. But basically, one, one thing is that – one factor is um, that – Sugar and carbs create a, actually change your neurochemistry, so you get a kind of serotonin high. Basically, sugar begets sugar. You eat sugar, you want more sugar. And the mechanisms that are underlie that are extremely complicated, and I don't know them. But you know, sugar acts like a drug. It, it stimulates similar um, pleasure centers to, I think, like cocaine. So, you know, when you're on a, when you're eating a lot of sugar and carbs, your metabolism is different um, than when you're eating a lot of fat and protein, um, and you, you, you know, your body gets used to that kind of being a sugar burner. So when you get off of that, your body craves to get back on it. Right. Dave Asprey, he calls it being in a sugar coma. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So if somebody were to go on a low carb diet and they were metabolically deranged, what kind of benefits would they see? Well, this is, you know, again, again, depends on the person, the kind of diet, there's all sorts of factors that go involved. I mean, if you really go the whole hog with this theory, you know, all of the diseases of civilization, you know, cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, probably weird things like autism, food allergies, you name it, Lou Gehrig. I mean, who, all the all these diseases are kind of all tied together, and they might be caused by sugar in the diet or some aspect of the Western diet. And so if you remove that bad aspect, and if it turns out to be sugar and carbs, then you might be able to solve not just your weight problem, but also... All, the, all these diseases, like lower your risk across the board for cancer, diabetes, et cetera. I mean, it might be. I mean, it also depends on how metabolically damaged you've been. You know, once you have, you know, once, you've, once you've been hit in the head, you know, or hit, hit in the fat tissue enough times, it's kind of hard to reverse that. It's actually miraculous that we can do it. What is the bigger problem, like the type of carbs or the amount? A lot of people say, well, the Catavans, they're that uh, Pacific Islander tribe. They eat a lot of carbohydrates, so obviously, like, low-carbohydrate diets can't improve weight or weight loss. So is it really the type of carbohydrates, or as you said, like, the amount somebody's metabolically deranged? How does that all fit in? Well, this is, this is what I understand, like, the new – because you, you raise a great point. Like, the Catavans, as you were talking about, they uh, – I was recently, was recently at the Ancestral Health Symposium, and they gave a lecture on the Catavans, uh, and they eat something like 90% of their calories – from yams or something like that. So they're just getting all their food from, from carbs, basically. And they're healthy. They don't have any of these diseases, no obesity. So if you, know, if you buy like the simplistic version of 
the carbohydrate hypothesis, which is like you eat carbs, this messes with your blood sugar and insulin and gives you diseases and obesity, then the ketavans are a huge problem uh, for that hypothesis. And it's the same true, same thing with like a, a lot of East Asian societies, the Japanese, uh, Okinawans, I believe, they eat a lot of rice, which is a, a grain, a processed carb, and they live to like a hundred. So, you know, that's a, that's a problem. But so in terms of like the, the quantity versus the quality, it's hard to say from that observation. Like it, if the Katavans doubled the amount of calories in their diets, would they get obese and sick? You know, let's say maybe, I don't know. But it seems like the the, the, uh, the main alternative idea is like you, you need sugar or you need something. You basically need to be metabolically screwed up by something and probably sugar. You know, I think Robert Lustig and Calves are believe now that uh, – you know, you'd have too much fructose and that messes up the liver, causes insulin resistance. And then once you get, once you get insulin resistant, then you become very sensitive to all these different foods, particularly the carbohydrates. And, and so then both the quality and quantity come into play. So, you know, and it's a dynamic, it's a dance. So can you, maybe, maybe a person is really sensitive if they have a glass of orange juice, that's going to screw them up, but they could have a bowl of pasta and it wouldn't. You know, so then it's it's all kind of a matter. The, the problem is there's there's no good science to tell us any of this, so you have to experiment, and that's that's kind of scary. Right. So it basically comes down to figuring out what works for you. And obviously, if you're eating a very hard, high carbohydrate diet and you're overweight, you might want to think about changing something. And if you're eating high carbohydrate diet and you're not overweight, maybe you're okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I mean, the problem is it's hard to tell. I mean, you could be okay now, but you could be doing damage. You don't know. Your weight is not necessarily the only barometer of the damage. You can be, you know, rail thin or in relatively good shape and still getting heart disease. You could still be getting cancer. So, you know, just like because you look good in the mirror um, and you're eating a high carb diet, you know, doesn't mean that you're going to be, you're safe. And that's why like one of the one of the things, the reason I eat low carb, I'm, I was never fat or anything, is, is that I just, it strikes me as like, get rid of all the foods that could potentially do you harm. But then again, you know, it's hard. <laughs> the stuff is all more, as, as I like learn more about it, it's all gets more complicated than what I have in my website and what I think a lot of low carbers believe. It's a, it's a big mess. Yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned that too, how about it's not, your weight is not the only barometer of health. I think that's a problem a no. lot of people run into is they believe if a food doesn't make you obese, that means it's healthy. And obesity is a problem, obviously, but I think Kurt Harris has written some good articles over at Archivore about this, how mm -hmm. even about the Katavans, we just don't know that much about them. There are only a few studies on them. So I think you're spot on by saying that there are a lot more problems that go into it than just being fat. You know, and the other thing I'd like to mention about the whole Katavan issue, because this is a big thing I know in the blogosphere of people, I don't know how many of your listeners are sort of hardcore, like reading all these different blogs on... Is that, you know, we see all this complexity and it's real and we tend to like want to, as human nature, to want to figure out simple rules to follow. And I think a lot of times people see this and they go back, they default to the calories count thing. Like uh, I know Stephen Guyanet, Stephen Guyanet, I forgot his name, talking about something called food reward, which is the idea that certain, you know, people on bland diets won't overeat and that, that explains why you know, you can look at all these cultures from the Katavans to the Inuit who eat very different kinds of diets and no one gets sick from them. Um, it's just like, well, he's, his idea is, well, they're just not eating as much as they, they, sh they, they're not eating enough to make themselves sick. And it's an, it's a, it's an, you know, a nice compelling idea, but it's also 
And I'm not saying there's not a food reward component in there or could be, but it doesn't, it doesn't answer all these other paradoxes out there. And uh, so it's a big problem. So there's this whole thing about calories not counting or whatever. And this is, this is what my website's kind of about. And there's this other idea, the carbs, insulin, sugar hypothesis that we're talking about and trying to debate and negotiate. What do we do about the ketobins? You know, what, what is the right diet? How was the quantity or quality? All those questions are important. And they all, you know, they're basically trying to modify or destroy the carbs, insulin hypothesis. But very separate from that, and this is, a, I, I want to, untangle this. So all that is complicated, but separate from that is this idea about calories counting. It's a different idea. Let me just tell your readers why everyone's so obsessed with calories, or listeners, which is that when someone goes from like 180 pounds to 240 pounds, they become obese for some reason, who knows? They're gaining 60 pounds of mass on their body, which means that they have to have overeaten 60 pounds worth of food somehow. So in other words, you can't, that mass cannot come out of nowhere. It has to be created by something, right? So somehow they've taken in more calories than they've burned off. And because that is an inevitable reality of, of laws of physics, people assume like when they see this complexity, just default to, well, you know, just don't eat too much and then you're not going to gain weight because you can't. And there's a lot of flaws to that reasoning, but like rather than rehash the tab's argument, what I, I want to get people to think about is there is... When you overeat calories, okay, there has to be some way for those calories to get into your fat tissue. It's not just, you know, there's, there's got to be some biochemical magic happening. And I'm calling this the, the black box. So in a chain of cause and effect, you have a, a lean person who eats too much, and then somehow there's this magical black box happens and, and helps the person store calories as fat. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. That's how everyone assumes things work, okay? So just take that in your mind. And put a pen in it. And then you, like, like, in my book, I bring up the example of a pregnant woman, right? A pregnant woman, you know, goes nine months and grows a baby. Maybe she gains 40, 30 pounds or something, right? Well, the laws of thermodynamics hold true for her too, right? She has to overeat by 30 pounds to make the baby. The the baby can't come from nowhere. Um, So there's a black box for her too. So you have a, a, a thin woman who's not pregnant. She overeats. And there's a black box that causes the, the calories to become her baby. Would you agree with that too? Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, if you think about that, it's actually that the cause and effect of that is reversed. It's not that she overeats calories and then becomes and, – and, uh, and, and that makes the baby. You know, otherwise, I could overeat calories and make a baby, right, which I can't because I'm a guy. It's a black box is reversed, and that's the key here is that we need to count what's in the black box and the calorie stuff is secondary. Because anytime you gain mass of any kind on your body, muscle tissue, you grow hair, you grow, uh, you know, you get a tumor, anything, anytime that happens, you're eating more calories and you're burning off. But who cares? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. It's irrelevant. And the same is true with your fat tissue because your fat tissue is just another organ. So the black box matters for your fat tissue too. And we have the cause and effect of this reversed. It should be a lean person, something screws up his black box, which then causes him to overeat, which then causes him to be fat. The overeating must occur, but it's irrelevant. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. When you look at a bodybuilder versus an obese person, they might have eaten, like the bodybuilder probably ate a lot more than the obese guy. Yet for some reason, the what he's eating is being turned into muscle instead of being turned into fat. And yeah. Yeah, and uh, Dave, again, he was about 300 pounds and ate 1,500 calories a day, 
and worked out six days a week for about 90 minutes at a time. Now he eats about 4,000 calories a day, very low carb, and doesn't work out at all, and he's perfectly healthy. So you're <laughs> right. There's just something not fitting in there. Yeah, I mean, and just, as I wrote this in my book, it's kind of like if your nails are growing too long, you don't eat less and exercise more. I mean, you know what I'm saying? If you're, if you don't want to get pregnant, like, you know, and this is why I think there's a lot of people, I think Guy and Ed and some of the James Krieger and some people are all pointing out these studies about something called double labeled water where, you know, they point out that obese people eat more than the lean people. And it's kind of like, of course, like pregnant teens are going to eat more than their non-pregnant counterparts, but who cares? Like, it doesn't explain why they're pregnant or not pregnant, you know? Um, but what's really kind of, and what I think is a, you know, this is a simple concept to understand, but what really throws people for a loop is that there is an intersection between the quantity and quality of food you eat and the black box. So, you know, like you were saying in the beginning, you can overeat, you can overeat food even on like a, you know, ketogenic diet and still mess up your fat storage, just like you can undereat. But if you're undereating, but you're not fixing whatever is the problem, like in other words, like let's say you're eating 800 calories a day and just drinking Coke, you know, so that's going to mess up, you know your metabolism. So you will, even though you're under eating, you're not going to fix the problem with your fat. So your, you know, your fat will stay fat, but you're just going to consume your organs and heart if you keep starving yourself. So, but it's, it's trying to negotiate that intersection. Like how does this stuff all come together? That's, that's difficult. And the system, whatever's inside that box is incredibly complicated. And it's not just the quantity and quality of food we eat. It's not just the quantity and quality of exercise we do. It's all sorts of anything that impacts the, the metabolic hormonal ensemble. You know, you could be smoking, you're, on a, you're, eating, you're taking antibiotics, you know, you're not getting enough sleep. Anything, you know, you're, you're eating the wrong foods at the wrong time. All these things can be, be meaningful and be interplaying. So the idea that, that we're going to have one diet that's going to solve everything is just kind of preposterous. Um, and so, you know, you have to look at kind of these North stars, like what can we look to? And one thing we can look to is what did our ancestors eat? We can also look to what does the science tell us? Like what are we, these carefully controlled clinical studies show us? And they generally say that low carb gets rid of metabolic syndrome, but you know, it's, it's complicated. And I think we have to just, you know, accept that as a community. Right. Uh, I'd love to talk about a little bit about the uh, food reward hypothesis. And yeah. before we go into it, one of the things, because obviously basically what he's saying, I know he said this before, is that low-carb diets and high-carb diets in terms of weight loss have about the same rate of success in studies. Maybe research has not caught up to this as much as it would. Uh, science yeah. is often behind. And when you look around, I don't see that many people saying they lost a lot of weight on a high-carb diet. But there are many people saying they lost it on a low-carb diet and were able to keep it off. Jimmy Moore. If food reward was the real problem, it doesn't really make sense in some ways. Because if you go on like Mark Sisson's site, Mark's Daily Apple, he has a yeah. ton of super tasty recipes on there. And that dude is lean. So, yeah, I just yeah, like it, your it's, taste. It's, it's not, you know, I don't want to just, it's one of these things, I don't want to dismiss it entirely. I mean, it could be, it could be a factor. I mean, be, there's a lot of stuff that makes sense about, I mean, I read his post, it's like, He's a good writer, and I, I some of his stuff is compelling, but like it's not a co coherent answer. Um, and you know, for instance, look at the obesity epidemic of dogs and cats. You know, these are really we saying our, our pets are overeating. That they're you know, you give a dog cat a, the same bowl of kibble every day. There's nothing changing about that. You know, maybe are you saying that it, you know so these cats are getting obese? Are you blaming that on 
the blandness of their, I mean, the, the, the diversity and tastiness of their diet, if they're getting just the same kibble every day, that's, I mean, that seems, you know, doesn't work. The other thing is you have to look at like in life without life without bread at the, uh, authors point out some clinical um, experience where they had people who were anorexic or, you know, basically really unhealthfully lean and they were, they were put on low carb diets and they gained weight, but they gained weight in all the right places. So how can a low carb diet make someone who's emaciated, full and, and healthy and, and bigger and yet someone who's obese, slim and lean? I mean, is it magic? I mean, you know, food reward really can't explain that evidence except to say that it's wrong. I mean, it didn't happen. But, you know, if, but if you look at like the theory of, well, these, these diets are doing something that's kind of taking away a problem, you know, too much insulin and blood sugar, then it explains it because it just, you know, you have, you have something underlying that's causing all this, this damage and you're taking it away when you take out the carbs. And the other thing I'll say is that with this, these diets, like uh, all these diets, you, you keep the diets the same calorie level and all you have to do is cut calories. doesn't matter what you eat, you'll lose weight. All the vegan diets, low carb diets, the standard American diet, all these things are all have one thing in common, which is they're very low sugar. So it could be if sugar is really the big problem for most people, then these diets could all be operating the same way. And for instance, like, you know, if you really want to test the food reward hypothesis, then give someone or test the calories count hypothesis, then put someone on a very low carb, a very low calorie diet and give them nothing but, but, but sugar, give them, make, give them the soda diet. You know, I'd like to see someone on like, you know, compare someone on a 2000, 2000 calorie a day drinking nothing but Coca-Cola, you know, yeah. and put them on that diet for a month. And if, and if they lose weight and get health, get healthier, then maybe it is all the calories. But I'm guessing that's not the case. I'm guessing the case is that all of these diets are operating in some ways by this, by similar mechanisms. Right. I think you're absolutely right. The food reward definitely may play a role. I just yeah. think that it might be a little over exaggerated. Uh, to a point. So, yeah. Yeah. How do you work out on a low-carb diet? I know that was one of the things you talked about on your website. Is it possible? A lot of people think like, oh, my God, I'm going on a low-carbohydrate diet. I can't work out now. Yeah. Well, you know, I get very excited by ideas that are kind of like counterintuitive. It's like my my thing. And one of these ideas about working out counterintuitive is I came from this strength trainer named Fred Hahn who runs a blog called Serious Strength. And uh, I, I interviewed him in my ebook, and uh, Fred emphasizes like uh, slow burn weight training, basically strength training, um, as the best kind of exercise you can do. I read his book. I mean, he wrote it with the Doctor's Eads, the Slow Burn Fitness Revolution. And I just before I read that, I was doing kind of standard exercise. I'd run. Um, you know, I'm not a triathlete like you, but I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I run and uh, I do yoga and stuff. And I was in good shape, but I was convinced, compelled by their arguments to give every, give all that up and just do weight training. And let me tell you, like, I'm now a year after that. I'm, I've never been in better shape. Like, I'm stronger than I was when I was, you know, rowing crew as a, you know, in in high school. You know, I have a baby uh, and I can lift her up because my lower back is really strong. So it's like this thing has really helped me and. uh I'm not sure, you know, I don't know enough about exercise physiology to, you know, compare slow burn with other kinds of training, but it's a, it's definitely been an interesting experience for me. So let's say you're talking to somebody who's never really been on a low carbohydrate diet before, and you're trying to convince them that maybe what they're doing, and they are metabolically deranged, like they obviously have a serious problem. Right. How are you trying to explain to them the simple explanation for why they would need change, or how do you go about trying to convince them that maybe the USDA is not 
in working in their best interest? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a great question. I, I you know, I, I try to talk about this in my the low carbon survival guide, this ebook that I wrote. It's hard. I, you know, when I first found out about this, I was a total evangelist. I'd go up to people I didn't know. Like, you know, I'd see them in the grocery store. They're, they're you know, drinking orange juice and low-fat milk, and they're clearly fat and diabetic. And I'm like, you know, I'd go up to them. I'd try and engage them and say, just don't don't drink that juice. Like, you need steak. You know, I taught my, my relatives. and they're, Some of them I've convinced, some of them I haven't. It's hard. Uh, and, and what's hard about it, too, is like, because the whole belief system of low-carb or whatever paleo is so foreign and if you if you follow the logic if you buy into this it means that you're you're buying into the fact that our public health authorities have completely screwed us over which is not something people want to believe you know we want to have that illusion that we're being taken care of or that we're at the very least not being asked to do things that are going to kill us i mean because basically when you're saying carbs are bad it's like it's as if we lived in a world where there was a government institution that was telling people to smoke cigarettes like a pack a day and we're saying, no, cigarettes are going to kill you and give you lung cancer. People would, people would freak out because it seems so, well, if that's true, then why are we being told to eat so many smoke cigarettes? You know, it's the same thing. So there's no easy way. It's people have to be ready to hear it. And, uh, you know, I think the one key is to listen to them instead of, you know, it's not about facts or arguments or convincing them. It's about listening to what are they feeling, what do they need, and letting them come to it at their own pace. Right. Once you really start diving into the evidence, you just you get so convinced by this stuff. It's like, man, why doesn't everybody know this stuff? And yeah, then you kind of like you pull your head out of the blogosphere and then you look around, and you realize that like there's still a whole normal world around you, too. Yeah. You know, the other thing about it is like food is like it's such a personal thing. I mean, you know, we think about like religion and politics as personal, but you don't have to make a decision about what church you're going to go to every day or um, I mean, I guess maybe you do, but. Or who you're going to vote for. But every day you have to eat like three or five times a day, you know, and it's a, such an intimate decision. And you know, to have a stranger, even someone, you, you know, you know and trust give you instructions about what you're going to eat. You know, people get protective about that. This is no, this is my food. Leave me alone. And it's like someone trying to steal French fries from your plate. You don't want that to happen. Right. Yeah. So are there any problems somebody might run into on a low carbohydrate diet? You mean such as what? Health problems. I know there's some talk recently about getting low thyroid or anything like that. And I know you're not a doctor or anything, but have you heard anything about that? Or have you experienced any problems yourself? I haven't experienced problems myself, but sure, it sounds plausible. I mean, I, you know, again, part of the thing is like you're taking people, these diets, basically, if you took a healthy human being, they could probably live on a lot of different diets right? They could live a Catavan diet. They could live an Inuit diet because we're adaptable or flexible. But basically you're taking people who are, most people who come to the world of diet have been broken somehow. Low carb might be a, a fix, but if you do it wrong, or if you're sensitive to certain things, like uh, who knows what, you could get sick. Or even if you could be sick from the residual damage that was done when you're metabolically hurt, you could be sick from, I don't know, maybe you have an allergy to, to something in the meat or there's many different ways you can get sick and do the diet wrong. And I'm not a doctor, but I can tell you that like, it's, it's not a cure-all necessarily. There's a lot. For instance, I know people that there's talk about people who go on a high protein diet, but low fat and that can have problems, you know? So sure. One of the biggest problems with sticking to a low carbohydrate diet is carb cravings. What are some tips yeah. you can give people about overcoming those? Okay, well, that's, that's kind of a plug for my book. I mean, in my book, The Low Carb Survival Guide, I talk about that. Um, I mean, carb cravings are 
natural to have. I can give, I'll just rattle off some tips. You can prevent, uh, you know, don't stock your kitchen with carbs. You know, use visualization and meditation. You can give yourself a time to binge. You can try and find, you know, making sure you're eating enough food is important. You know, this is a, a thing that I think a lot of failed calorie counters have a problem with this is they're you know they're scared of eating and so even on a low carb diet they may only eat like 800 calories a day like make sure you're eating enough you know also the, the company you keep is important too that's we are very social creatures so if you have if you're in a family make sure your family is helping you and supporting you and that's hard because a lot of family members will just make fun of you or will encourage you just to, to snack i mean imagine if you're like a smoker right think about it as being a smoker and you're and you're trying to quit and everyone around you is smoking. They're smoking in restaurants. They're giving baby cigarettes. You know, you, you know, you smell secondhand smoke every room you go into and you're craving the nicotine, right? I mean, you can try nicotine glam or whatever, but the point is that's the kind of environment we're, we're in. If you're trying to cut carbs, which is like you go to the grocery store, it's like carbs everywhere. And not only that, but you're also in this environment where people are telling you that the carbs, that cigarettes are healthy. So it's like, you're going out, imagine you go out to a nice dinner where you're outside, I guess, where you can still smoke, and someone's like, "Why don't you have a few cigarettes with your dinner?" And you're like, "No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not smoking. I'm trying to." You know, and they laugh at you, and they're like, "Come on, what? Smoking causes lung cancer? Forget it. Like that's ridiculous. Have a cigarette." You know, and that, that's, that's the kind of environment that people are stuck in, which is horrible. It's hard. So, what was the hardest part about going low carb for you, and how did you overcome it? Well, I tend to take things to extreme, so. When I read Tabs' book, I was like, oh, I'm convinced. I felt convinced by the arguments. and uh, So it wasn't like a matter of my not believing it. I, you know, I think part of it was the sense of isolation that when you're, di- you know, when I'm eating this way and all of my friends and relatives are not, actually some of them are now, um, it's hard because you feel you have, you have to explain explain yourself. You want to convince them. And so there's that. That was very hard for me. It still is hard because... I want to help people. I, I, I'm an evangelist by nature. So when I see people who are eating not how I think they should eat, uh, my impulse is to tell them to change, which is, you know, maybe something about me, but, uh, you know, that's hard for me. Yeah. Would yeah. you talk a little more about your book, The Low Carber Survival Guide? Well, Low Carber Survival Guide is uh, basically like a, a manual of uh, you know, some tips and ideas and strategies to help people who are on low carb or paleo kind of deal with the day-to-day challenges and living this thing, which is, you know, it's expensive. You're buying bison instead of, you know, Cracker Jacks, which just costs more. It takes time to bear. It's annoying. So it's basically like a, I'm trying to identify the challenges that we have and solve them. And, and then it also comes with bonus interviews with Fred Hahn and uh, Gary Taubes. It's really long interviews with them, talking to them about like what it's like for them to try and you know, how they deal with low carb challenges and um, talking about Fred Hahn's uh, slow burn system. So it's, I mean, I think it's like 200 pages long. So there's a hundred pages of, you know, trying to address these problems and figure out what to do about them. And there's also these two interviews, you know, and then I also, and I, I'm about to start a new blog and I'm using this, um, this new report called calorie gate to launch it. And the calorie gate thing talks is about the black box concept that I just talked about. And uh, I'm writing, I'm finishing up a new book called Beyond Calorie Gate, which is basically if we accept the premise that the black box is what we need to count and not calories, how do we do that? You know, kind of looking at just this mountain of stuff that is in there. And then, you know, as I said before, it's the quantity and quality of foods, quantity, quality of exercise, and a million other things, medications. You have stuff on your site, which I, I thought was interesting, you know, 
gut flora, who knows what's in there. And so, you know, how do we look inside there and figure out what's a count? So that's what that book's about. And then basically going forward, what I really want to do is spread this concept of the black box and get people thinking about how to move beyond calories. Because if there's one concept I think we can, the paleo, low carb, and other vegan, we can all unify behind is this black box thing because it's ultimately agnostic and we need to figure out how to move beyond this whole eat less, move more insanity because that's, I, you know, this, this is the way, um, a way I think about it is this. If the USDA food pyramid is Darth Vader, then the calorie balance scales, it's the emperor. It's the, the power beyond the throne. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like if, yeah. until we get rid of eat less, move more, until we get rid of calories and calories out, we're never going to solve the problem of the food pyramid because the advocates of the food pyramid can always just say, well, don't eat too much. That's the problem. Everything in moderation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Adam, thank you so much for talking about this, man. I hope everybody uh, checks out your blog. Where can they find you and uh, see what you're doing? You can check out their website, whylowcarbdietswork.com with actually dashes in between every word for extra convenience. That's just kind of stuff I wrote about a year ago or more. And it's probably at this point pretty outdated, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it has some interesting ideas. But, you know, hopefully coming, coming forward, I want to be more active in terms of blogging. Good. They're very well-written articles. And I'll make sure to have a link to your new site and your book and everything in the uh, show notes to this. So, Adam, thanks, man. I appreciate it. This wraps up this week's show. Thank you for listening. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes at bulletproofexec.com. If you enjoyed this, we'd really appreciate it if you considered ordering something from our small business sister site at upgradedself.com. We carry a lot of things that you can't find anywhere else, and everything there is something that I personally use myself and I've found to be the most effective thing possible in the smallest amount of time. To be perfectly honest, that site doesn't pay for the cost of producing the show and the blog, but it helps to defray the costs. It's certainly not a giant business, and we appreciate your support. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.